Right on. All right, so I read something this morning that I just want to read to you guys because I think the timing of God is just fantastic. And it's from Psalm 36, verses 1 through 4. But um, it's called, uh, Tim Keller has this little book on the Psalms. And uh, in this, this is what he says. So this is his commentary on that particular portion of scripture. Short, but it's uh, definitely going with what we talked about last night. And he titles it, The Anatomy of Sin. He says, fearing God is not mere belief in him. It is to be so filled with joyful awe. Oh, somebody just texted me. Hang on, it just covered up my thing. (laughs) I'm like, okay. It is to be filled with, all right, here we go. It is to be so filled with joyful awe before the magnificence of God that we tremble at the privilege of knowing, serving, and pleasing him. Sin shrugs at God. Its essence is failing to believe not that he exists, but that he matters. Ouch. And that is the essence of sin. And we can make light of sin and say, well, it's not that big, but uh, somebody else I'd once heard a theologian, I like the old dead guys, they tend to say a lot of really good stuff, um, said that the essence of sin is ignoring God and the world he created. You know, you think about that. If you invited somebody over to your house and they came into your house and they used all your stuff and they put on your best makeup and your favorite sweater, um, ate your favorite food and never talked to you, would you invite them back? You wouldn't, because that just isn't how we're wired. But because God is love, he tolerates, nope, he loves us, not because we're lovable, but just because he is. And he allows us to be in his creation every day, every day, hoping and just saying, you know, do you see me? I left evidence everywhere, do you see me? And with the fall colors changing and and things just changing up, I just think it's almost impossible to walk through it and not see him. So, all right, we're on to, so this morning... Um, We're on to um, how Jesus came to deal not only with our sin, but also with our shame. And so there's a few places I want to go in scripture that are going to unpack this. The first of this is going to be, let's just go back. We we talked about Genesis 3, and we talked about in Genesis 3 how um, the very first thing that the enemy does is to take out the goodness of God, right? And what we see God do is to provide the very first covering for Adam and Eve's sin, God provides their very first covering. He slays an animal and gives the very first sacrifice to cover over their sin. And so he's the one who places the covering on that. Now that's not just a Genesis 3 thing. That's something we're going to see continues all the way through scripture. And so where we're going to look today, first off, is Luke 8.40. You can kind of follow along if you'd like. Um, If not, just enjoy the rendition of it. But in Luke 8.40, in this whole portion of Luke, what we see is we see this portion where Jesus just gets done healing the demoniac man, a man who's really lived in shame for the vast majority of his life, so much so that people, when they traveled from here to here, they would have to pass through this area where the demoniac lived and instead would take a treacherous road up into the hills just to avoid having anything to do with him. Now, granted, that is because he was absolutely considered dangerous, but also, they just didn't want anything to do with him. You know, and that's where Jesus just came from, is healing that man who has really lived his whole life in shame. And now he's going through the village, and Jairus, who is a government official, stops him. And he's like, teacher, teacher, my my daughter is very sick. Can you come? We think she's going to die. Can you come and heal her? She's 12 years old. And Jesus, in his compassionate way, agrees to go with the Father. On the way, as we see in in 843, 
a woman who had been hemorrhaging for 12 years, I think it's uncanny, the similarity there. 12 years, she's born shame. In 12 years, that daughter's lived in royalty. Two opposite ends of the spectrum, but 12 years on both. A woman who had had a hemorrhage for 12 years and could not be healed by anyone came up behind him and touched the fringe of his cloak. Oh, I love that. And immediately her hemorrhaging stopped. Now let's just think about this. If you were, if you were a hemorrhaging woman back in New Testament times, you would not be allowed in the regular populace. You would be committed back out to what they would call the red tent. And you would have to stay there in shame until your period of hemorrhaging or bleeding was over. This woman had been doing this for 12 years. There was no protection around the red tent either, so it made you easy prey for anybody, right? And so really, she spent the last 12 years not just in shame, but likely in fear as well. And so she hears of this teacher who's coming. She's had a lot of people try to help her over the years, and she decides, I'm gonna take a chance. I'm gonna step out of my comfort zone and I'm gonna go where everybody's gonna ridicule me and I'm gonna just touch him. I just need to touch him. And that's what she does. But here's the part I love. Here's the part I love. Jesus said, someone touched me for I was aware that power had gone out of me. And when the woman saw that she'd not escaped, notice she came trembling, fell down before him and declared in the presence of all the people the reason why she touched him and how she had been immediately healed. And he said to her, daughter, daughter. That's exactly how he refers to the 12-year-old Jairus' daughter. He refers to them both as daughter. He makes no distinction between their socioeconomic background, between their current state of mind, between their shameful acts or non-shameful royalty or, or cast-outedness. He, make, he makes no distinction. He calls them both daughter. He doesn't see what society sees and labels ever. All he sees, to those who belong to him, daughter. I love that. And I love that as he healed her, she fell face down and proclaimed in front of all the people. Think about that. These are people who are probably horrified that she's in their presence. Like, oh, she's touching me. She's, oh, what? I can just imagine the buzz. And I'm thinking it wasn't the little whispering buzz. I'm thinking it was a loud buzz of how indignant they were that she was in their presence. And in the face of that, she falls face down and just proclaims to anyone who will listen. Oh, can we get a picture of that? When we see what he's done for us, do we fall face down before him in the presence of anyone and proclaim what he's done for us? Because that's worship. That is. That's worship, but that's also him coming into our world and taking our shame and calling us daughter. Daughter. A label meant for relationship. Oh, I love that. Now move with me over to prodigal son story, Luke 5, 15, 11. And this might be an account that's very familiar to a lot of you, but I want you to see it with fresh eyes this morning. Okay, so pretend like, like we haven't heard it before and we're just seeing it for the first time. Just to set the stage, Jesus is talking to a lot of people, lot meaning group, and they're in, in that group consists Pharisees, 
They're the ones who are definitely self-righteous, law-abiding, legalistic, and there's also sinners, tax collectors, prostitutes in the mix. So this is a mixed bag of people that are listening to him. He just got done telling them a couple other parables, the parable of the lost sheep, the parable of the lost coin, and now he's on to the parable of the lost son. And in any one of these accounts, if you were to read these parables, there's a few things that every one of them has in common. Something is lost, something is searched for, something is found, something's restored in all of those. And the part I want to point out is, yes, something is lost, but the search is always by the Father, by God. The one who's searching always represents God. So you may feel like, you know, I'm searching, I'm searching. (laughs) I get it, but guess what? The hound of heaven is after you. Right? He is searching you out too. So absolutely, you may feel a pull to search, but probably because he's placed it there. So let's look at this, let, let, let's look at this account. All right, so here we've got the prodigal son. I'm gonna just start by verse 11. I may not actually finish the whole thing because the point of the account is actually made in the, the first half or two-thirds of this account. So I'll maybe add a little ending uh, clip for you, but um, let's just read what we've got here. So verse 11, and he, meaning Jesus, said... A certain man had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the estate that falls to me. Stop right there. We're just going gonna to pause as we walk through this. Because the Pharisees who are sitting there at this point in this account or this story he's telling would have been horrified. There is not a son alive who would go to their dad and say, Father, I wish you were dead. Because that's essentially what he's saying. That's when the estate falls to them is once the father passes on. Father, I'd like you to be dead. You know, what? Now the younger son got one third of the estate. The older son would get two thirds. You don't see anywhere in here the older son saying, Jimmy, now stop. You don't because he's probably over there with his calculator. Two thirds, right? He says nothing. And it is the older brother's job in this ancient culture to protect the younger brother, and to protect the younger siblings in the, in the decisions they make. And we don't see that from the older brother at all here. So if we go on, it says, and the father divided his wealth between them. The Pharisees at this point are like, are you kidding me? The father would never do that. No father would do that. They would have beaten that boy. Jesus doesn't let it rattle him. He keeps going. Verse 13 And not many days later, the younger son gathered everything together and went on a journey into a distant country. And there he squandered his estate with loose living. The father's estate had to be a sizable estate. It had to be large. We'll see later in this account that he has servants and slaves. This is a big, big estate. And how it would work is because you didn't have roadways and trains and stuff like you have now, Once you had a sizable estate that you would have servants and slaves for, they would set up little housing all around it. And at the end, it would essentially create like a village, really, a small village that would be centered on the father's estate. This was a big estate. In order for him to have sold it off in a couple days' time, because we see that the son left in a couple days, he would have had to sell it at a bargain. At a bargain. And so really, the son not only said, I wish you were dead, He also said, because you have no value to me. I don't really value you or your stuff. Just give me what you can. And the father did. He sold it off at a bargain rate. Verse 14. Now when he had spent everything, this is the younger son, a severe famine occurred in that country and he began to be in need. 
And he went and attached himself to one of the citizens of that country, and he sent him into the fields to feed swine. And he was longing to fill his stomach with the pods that the swine were eating, and no one was giving anything to him. This is how deep this boy's need is. There was only one thing that was lower than a shepherd, a sheep farmer, and it was a pig farmer. Pigs were the worst of the worst. It, to, to farm pigs was disgraceful. To eat what they left behind, unthinkable. No one would do that. Only a very desperate man would do that. And that is right where this younger son finds himself. Desperate, desperate needs. When it says he attached himself to a citizen, he's literally following around one of the pig farmers, like waiting for him to drop something. I could just see him on his hands and knees like a dog, like sniffing at the ground. Is there anything? Is there anything? Maybe shaking from his lack of food, whatever it might be. This is a desperate time. Verse 17. But when he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired men have more than enough bread, but I am dying here with hunger. This is where it starts for anybody. This is where it has to start. He came to his senses. And I don't know, you know, I think you could totally take this story and you could, there's a, there's a relatable portion of this story for people who don't know the Lord at all. They came to their senses and we would say they came to the end of themselves. But I also think this portion, because he's called a son, relates itself very well to somebody who's a believer who's maybe fallen away from the father and are trying to do things their own way again, and they're getting really lured in by the world, and they at some point have to come to their senses. But notice what does it to bring him back. He remembers the father. He remembers his character. Because back then you had day laborers, and they would come in, they would work, and they would get paid enough for the day, only enough to, to sustain them for that day, because that would ensure that they were hungry the next day and would show up for another day's work. This father gave them more than enough. He was a generous, compassionate, giving father. It's the father's character that brought the boy to his senses. Why did we study God's attributes last night? Because the more you understand who he is, the more you'll come to your senses and realize he's not just there to thump you. He is if you're on this side of the cross, absolutely. If you die in your sins, yes. That's called God's wrath, absolutely. But if you're a child of his, his goal is never to thump you. This boy broke every rule, every rule. But he was family. You know, the Pharisees, the one question you'd, you know, you'd say, would you really ever ask a parent, why do you love your child? You know, Jimmy's acting up over here and he's your kid. Would, I mean, how would you feel really if someone came up to you and they're like, why do you love him? Right, collective gasp, <gasps> right. We would be like, are you kidding? He's my son. And that's exactly what we get in this rendition. He broke every rule, but he's a son. And so relationship trumps rule breaking, right? This is not a love that is earned, but it is a love that is returned. And we're gonna see that come in here too. He says, verse 18, I will get up and go to my father and will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. Wow, here it is. He comes to his senses, but he says exactly what David said. I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. Heaven first, though. And now, let's just think about this boy. We'll, we'll just kind of put this on pause for a minute. We're going to take a rabbit trail. 
but let's take this whole thing and let's modern day it. I can't imagine this prodigal son was sitting over here in the father's cushy estate with a good job looking to to inherit all this wealth, thinking that one day he would be eating pods with swine. Like if he looked down, let's say he's standing on A, letter A, and down at Z are the people who are eating the pods that the swine left behind. I'm pretty sure he never sat on A and he was looking like, boy, yeah, I can see where I would end up there. Absolutely not. He was like, I will never be there. I'll never go there. There's no way I'll go there. So how did he end up on Y, looking at Z? And I'll say it's, it's a little bit at a time. It's one step at a time. How do we end up one step from an affair? One step at a time. How do we end up one step away from bankruptcy? One charge at a time. How do we end up one step away from filing for divorce? One feeling at a time. And every time we take a step on this line of A to Z, that step that we're taking is based off our feelings, not off of our knowledge that's turned into wisdom. And our feelings change. One day I feel like, I feel like giving my husband a massage, and the next day I feel like snacking him upside the head, right? I mean, let's just be, there's, our feelings change. And so if I base my truth on my feelings, I will forever be making my way down this line called compromise. And once I compromise, pretty soon I'll be like the prodigal son, looking, standing at Y, looking at Z, like, how on earth did I get here? One step at a time. Two weeks ago, I had a LinkedIn request come across my email from a boy who was going to ask me to marry him. Years ago, this is not my husband. And it came through and my heart stopped. I even caught my breath like, and I deleted it quick. And I went over where my husband was, threw him on his belly and started giving him a back rub. (laughs) And he was like, I love this, (laughs) you know? But I'm like, no, do not even entertain it. There is no innocent evil thought. There's no innocent evil thought. If we cannot keep our thoughts captive, they will wreak havoc. And we're going to talk a lot about that on day, or tomorrow, session four. We're going to talk a lot about how to take our thoughts captive. But there's no innocent evil thought. If you can't keep it in check, it will go unchecked. And if you're not taking active steps to keep the world out, you're not keeping the world out. It's just that simple. And you'll find yourself all of a sudden moving on this line. Here's the great news. If you notice from our story, the prodigals all the way over here on why took a lot of little steps to get there, didn't it? How many steps did it take him to get back to A? One stinking big jump. You bet. And it was a jump that started with, come to my senses. Admit where I'm at. I mentioned last night we live in this society that wants to erase guilt. No one's guilty. Everyone's a victim. And that's exactly what the world would want you to think. You're the victim. You know, erase guilt. Don't take responsibility. But there's this verse in Joshua 7.19 where Joshua says to his son Achan after catching him in sin, and Achan is not admitting it, he says, Achan, my son, tell me what you have done and do not hide it from me. Tell me what you have done and give glory to the Lord. It gives glory to God every time we admit when we've done something wrong. Why? Because it admits our need for a savior. If I can erase guilt, I erase the need for a savior. Erasing guilt is the enemy's idea. You don't need him. 
Absolutely not. There was a book called Erasing Guilt that was actually published. And the premise of this, this book said that if there's something you feel guilty about, do it and do it often until you no longer feel guilt. And it was a bestseller. Snap. Yeah, right? And then you've got the weird court cases like the guy who said uh, he ate too many Twinkies and that's why he committed the crime and they actually entertained that argument. I don't know if he got off or not, but they actually allowed him a floor to make his case on Twinkies. Look it up once, it's ridiculous. Yeah, but that's the society we're living in. No one wants to take responsibility. Instead, what do we do? I'm faced with my guilt. I cry. I blame someone else. I get mad. I get defensive. By the way, if you get defensive, there's an element of truth to it. So the next time you feel defensive, just sit back and go, why am I defensive? I better look and see whether or not there's some truth to this. And most times there's some truth to it. You might minimize it, deflect it. Oh, but did you see what they did? Next time, just do this, just own it. Just own it and it's done. It's just done. And what a humbling thing before the Lord to say, you know what, Lord, I messed up. I just messed up. And to say it to another person, I messed up. Will you forgive me? And here's the thing. If, some, if you ask for forgiveness from somebody and they say they won't forgive you, a pastor of ours taught me this years ago, and this does work every single stinking time. But if I say, I really messed up, will you forgive me? And they're like, no, I, I can't. Then I do this. When you can forgive me, will you let me know? Now the ball's in their court and it's off me. I don't have to live with that anymore. Now it's on them. That's freeing. Freeing. When you can forgive me, will you let me know? Done. Done. Okay, we're off our rabbit tail back to our account. Here we go. I know, right? Rabbit trails. Love them. All right. So he says, I'm going to go back to my father. I'm going to say it. I've sinned against heaven and against you. He continues in verse 19. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me as one of your hired men. And he got up and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion for him and ran and embraced him and kissed him. You have to see this. This is so good. The father is looking for the son. It's a village. He's looking. He saw him a far way off. He knows what he looks like. And he's been looking. Remember how I said the hound of heaven will find you? This is him. He's looking for him. But he also knows that if that boy hits that village, what they would say to him is the whole village would surround him. And history tells us that what they would do is they would simultaneously scream to him. They would say to him, I got to find it in here because I want to make sure. He has been cut off from his people. He has been cut off from his people. He has been cut off from his people. Shame. Shame, sounds like shame. And everybody would be chanting this to this boy. He knew that that's what awaited his son when he entered the village. To take that from him, what he did, scripture tells us he ran. Middle Eastern noblemen do not run. It shows a lack of control. They will not run. It is shameful to run. And he wants to get to that boy before that boy gets to the village. But in order for him to run, which is shameful, he has to lift up his tunic, bearing his calves, which is double shameful. Middle Eastern noblemen do not bear their skin at all. This father is willing to take two chunks of shame to spare his son the shame. And when he meets him, I can just imagine the village is starting to come after him. The father throws his arms around him in a protective shield 
And, he, and now all of the shame is directed at the father. They can't believe what they just saw. This guy just ran in here bearing his skin. What is he doing? And their focus is off the son and onto the father. He took his shame. And that is what he does for us. For us to now live in that shame is sinful, really. You're saying what he did didn't matter. After everything he did, releasing us from sin and shame, to now still live in that? Can you imagine if the father threw off the, or the son threw off the father and he said, no, father, I won't have it. And stood, like, how would the father have felt? That doesn't even make any sense. Instead, what we see, we see this awesome restoration. Remember the four steps to all these parables? Here comes the restoration. Verse 21, the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven, and in your sight I am no longer worthy to be called your son. The father does not let him finish. He interrupts him, cuts him off, and the father said to the, to the slaves, quick, slaves that are standing there, right? Because they just came to encircle the boy, right? So he turns to his slaves, and now at the authority of the father, he says, quickly, Bring out the best robe and put it on him. Best robe would have been the father's robe. Bring out one of my robes and put it on him. And put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet. A ring on his hand would have meant the family signet ring, which gives the son the authority of the father. It has the crest of the family on it, which means any time that they make a deal or pass a deed or do a purchase, the father would roll the ring across it, putting the crest of the family on that, that piece of paper, and then the authority of the family rested there. He just gave that authority to his son. God didn't just release us from our shame. We now have authority of God to claim victory over everything. Everything. He gave it to us. That's what this, this account is showing us. And I love the fact that the son doesn't argue with the dad. You know, I mean, he wasn't even allowed to finish. I mean... If my dad would say that, you know, if you didn't know your father's character, that he would be true to his word, you might have been tempted to be like, no, really, dad. No, really. I mean, I'll work as one of your hired hands. I mean, really, dad, it's okay. You don't see that. The, the son already knows it's done. Done. Do we know the authority of the father when he speaks? Done. Your shame? Done. Just done. He took it. He took it. At the expense of himself on a cross, he took it. I love this. And then they bring out a fattened calf. They kill it. It's a celebration, which we do see in Scripture. A celebration happens every time a repentant sinner comes back to the Lord. There's a celebration that happens. We see in the previous parable of the lost sheep that the father celebrates with joy. And if I say I love the father and sinners coming to know him brings him joy, why would I not tell everybody? Why wouldn't I tell everybody? It brings my father joy. And I love him. When we love someone, we love to bring them joy. I should tell everybody, everyone, I love this. The story goes on, you know, the, possibly you do or you don't. The other son is out in the field, never was looking for his brother, comes back, he's angry, they threw a party. Father invites him in. The story ends in this cliffhanger where the second son, the older son, is sitting outside refusing to come into the party. And people are left wondering, how does the story end? Well, the story hadn't ended yet, which is why the cliffhanger's there. But the story does end, and we do know the ending. If you were to write the ending now after having scripture to back it up, the older son picked up a club and beat his father to death and hung him on a cross, because that's exactly what the Pharisees did. They beat him to death, spit at him, mocked him, and put him on a cross after everything the father did. <sighs> Let that not be the response of our nation. Amen? Amen.
Amen. Two points have to come out of this whole account. These hemorrhaging woman and the prodigal son. Number one, we've got to come to our senses. Either on the, 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 land, the line of, I don't know the Lord and I'm still guilty in my sin. Well, come to your senses. You are individually guilty. We all are. But every one of us has to individually make a choice to allow God to free us from that sin. Come to your senses. And then what we learn from the hemorrhaging woman is get out of your safe zone, take a risk, and seek the Savior. Get out of your safe zone, take a risk, and seek the Savior. And I'm not saying seek him like I would seek for a quarter. Okay, I mean, I watched one of my kids like misplace their phone. That's seeking. <laughs> okay, that's seeking. Like, they enlisted the help of the whole family and couple houses on each side to look for the phone. Phone calls were made from my phone. Hey, is my phone in your car? That's seeking, right? Or if my child went missing, I am rather certain no, no stone would be left unturned as I sought for my child. We tend to think, I'm seeking the Lord. Really, when was the last time you were in the Bible? Because he's there. He's there. My prayer is that we leave here with this resurgence of like, I can't wait to get in. I'm hungry for the Lord. I'm hungry for his word. Oh, I love that. If you wanted to take this and take modern day, I think it's, it's best um, shown by a story that was told by, um, by a gentleman. And he said, right before they got married, his wife gave him a letter. And in this letter, she gave him 40 things that he didn't know about her that he, she thought he should know before he married her. <laughs> I know. <laughs> And he doesn't tell us what one through 36 is, but he does say that when I got to 37, I was shocked. Like it wasn't something you would think would be on somebody's top 40 list of things I'm either ashamed of or didn't want you to know about me, but here it was, four words, I am a Trekkie. <laughs> and he was like, what? She's like, I'm a Trekkie. I love Star Trek. And he's like, he kind of thought, well, that's not really anything to be ashamed of, but she was ashamed of it. Like he didn't see it, but she did. And so he kind of thought, well, there's a new Star Trek movie coming out. Perhaps she told me this so I would take her. And so he agreed to take her. And so they get to the movie, and he wears the shirt with Spock on it over here. So he's got this shirt on, okay, and he's wearing it with, you know, I can't, maybe I can't, yes, I can, okay? And then he's holding this boldly go where no man has gone before a poster above his head, holding like big poster too. So he's wearing the short shirt and he's holding the poster. And he says he was standing there. People were like, oh, cool, man, whatever. And then he sees his wife or his fiance at that point coming up. She parks and he's like, oh, that's cool. There she is. She comes up and he goes, I couldn't have braced myself for the response she had. He said, her knees literally buckled as she fell into my arms, sobbing, that I would wear the things she was so ashamed of. That someone else would literally wear that thing that you are so ashamed of is ridiculous. And yet he does. You know, I don't know what it is. You know, some of the hardest memories for us to shake are moments when we've been shamed. Sometimes just a couple of words and they stick with us for years. I remember my, my uh, dad once saying to me that having me at the house with my kids was like having five 10-year-olds. You know? and, and it took me a while to, to like shake that. Like, I don't know how to take that. You know? But I remember feeling like I had, to, I had to write myself. I had to redeem myself from a word like that. And we've since made peace about it. It's fine. But I do remember how shaken I was by just that small comment. What about the words that you heard saying, you're ugly, you're not good enough, you're not worth the time. 
Jesus took on himself every time we've been mocked, spit on, every failure, every bullying, every abuse, every exposure, every rejection. He literally clothed himself in it and says to us, I am not ashamed of you and you do not need to be ashamed either. Enough. Enough. He's wearing that thing we're ashamed of and he loves us. Oh, I love that. Isaiah 54.4 shows us this. Fear not, you will no longer live in shame. Don't be afraid, there's no more disgrace for you. You will no longer remember the shame of your youth and the sorrows of your widowhood. You will no longer. God would not command us to not do it if it wasn't possible. Remember that. I would never tell my child they could do something they couldn't do. I would set them up for failure. He says, do not live in shame any longer. Don't do it. Don't. I remember distinctly after I had my third child, um, they were, uh, the third one was a little bit older, but I hadn't had my fourth one yet. And I had one of those rare moments where I was sitting on the fireplace cement ledge and I was just, I don't know, man, I didn't even want to be near myself. You know, it was just one of those moments where I just, I was just in a bad state and I was crying and my whole family was kind of standing there like, I think one of them took a few steps back, like, I don't know what to do with mom right now. And I remember saying to them, I know you guys don't even want to be near me right now, but I don't even want to be near me. Like somebody, anybody, anybody? Put a hand in the air if you can relate. Yeah, a moment where you're like, I don't even want to be near me right now. Man, but I can't get out of this body and escape. And I remember being given the verse in Isaiah where it talks about a nursing mom. And it says, though a nursing mom may forget her child, I will never forget you. And I thought about that. And you know, when I had my babies, all I wanted was my babies. And I got them, oh yeah. And then they started to cry. And I'd shake them a little harder, you know. And then a friend would come by, probably my friend Donna here, and she'd be like, do you want me to take him? Yes. Yes, take my child. I need a break. God never says that about us. He didn't die for your best moment. He died for your worst. That moment when you can't even stand being near yourself, that's the moment he bellies right up next to you and he says, oh, I'll take you. I'll take you. And I don't really care if you start crying or whatever. I'm, I'm not going to go anywhere. Where's that verse? It's right here. Can a mother forget the baby at her breast and have no compassion on the child she has born? Though she may forget, I will not forget you. See, I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. Your walls are ever before me. I've seen very few people in my lifetime who have tattooed the palms of their hands. And if you think about it, think about how many times a day you see that part of your body. He put us there for a reason. He wants to see us often. Often. Now, we have three responses to this kind of shame taking away and sin taking away. So what God did for us, we have three responses. We're going to go through all three of them. Here's the first one. And this is assuming that you have made the jump and said, yep, I realize I'm a sinner. I want God to take the punishment for my sin. I am now called his daughter. This is assuming that that's the jump you've made. Okay, so here's three responses. The first one. The first one starts in Matthew 16, 18. And it starts with this conversation that Peter and Jesus are having. And Jesus says, Peter, who do you say I am? And Peter says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus says, you are correct. On this, I will build my church. Pause button there. Jesus said he will build his church. For those of you in ministry, it is not up to your good marketing, promotional plans, or hefty giveaways. You, our job is to be the kind of people in church he uses to build his church. What kind of church is that? 
one that glorifies his name, makes big of his name, and not of our name or even the church name. Church is not a a number on a building, it is the church. And the church's whole design all through scripture is to make a lot of God because there's a lot there, right? But then that goes on and he says, and the gates of hell will not overcome it. Think about this, hell has gates. Now why would hell have gates? Gates surely aren't an offensive weapon. I've never seen a war movie or something where the enemy is coming and the, the other side, all right, pick up your gates. And they pick them up and go. Woo, yeah. You never see that because gates are not offensive. Gates are defensive. Hell has gates because it knows how powerful the enemy is. We're the enemy of hell. The enemy knows how powerful we are. And here's what he hopes. This is where we're going. We're going over to Luke. And so we're back in Luke 14, 27 through 33. And I'm going to actually go 28. I'll start at 28. For which one of you, when he wants to build a tower, does not first sit down and calculate the cost to see if he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who observe it begin to ridicule him, saying, the man began to build and was not able to finish. Or, what king, when he sets out to meet another king in battle, will not first sit down and take counsel whether he is strong enough with 10,000 men to encounter the one coming against him with 20,000? Or else, while the other is still far away, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. Here's one response to that gospel. The fact that hell has gates means the enemy knows how powerful his enemy is. That's us. What will happen with some Christians is they ask themselves two questions in this war. Do I have the resources to do this? That's what we see in this Luke 14. Do I have the resources? Will my 10,000 men beat the 20,000? Do I have the resources? And they count the cost. What will this cost me in relationships, in time, in whatever, to be on fire, a formidable foe to the enemy's gates? What will it cost me? If my answer is, it's going to cost me too much, my reputation's at stake. It's going to cost me too much. That, that's money and time. It's going to cost me too much. But I had dreams. And if we say, nope, it, the cost is too high. Or if we say, I don't have the resources, which means you really don't know who your father is because you don't need to have any resources. He has all of them, right? If the answer to either of those questions is a negative, like, nope, can't do it, nope, cost too high, you will make peace with the enemy, And here's how it looks. The enemy comes up and he says, I tell you what, Tammy, I won't bother you. You don't bother me. We cool? If you take that deal, he is happy to say, deal. Deal. He loves it when we don't bother him. Why? Because he has gates. He knows if we say no deal, he's going down. He's going down. That's one response. And I see a lot of Christians living in, in this, I've made peace with the enemy mentality. No, don't do it. Don't do it. He knows how powerful you are. Live in the power, not in the passivity. Second response. We could stay in the wilderness. I need to show you this beautiful, beautiful clip from a sweet movie, Cinderella. Okay, so I'm just going to show you the clip and then we'll explain it later. So I'll let let the, the clip say it all. Oh, say yes. Say yes. Right? Oh, okay. 
This is, this is such a beautiful picture of coming to, coming to Jesus, right? She sees him, he's everything. She sees him for who he is. Like she's known him, right? The whole movie, she's known him. And now she sees he's the prince. <gasps> and she comes and she's like, I'm just gonna go as I am. I'm not gonna make any excuses. I'm just, I got nothing to offer you. Like, oh, here I am. And then she says, will you take me? And we wait, of course, he says, yes, she's Cinderella, right? And then we see this come at right after that. Here it comes. Oh, good movie. But here's what you gotta see. I know, now you guys all wanna see it. So tonight, it, no, I'm kidding. <laughs> Debbie's like, what, we're doing a movie? <laughs> but here's what you gotta see. So she I hope you saw this. But she reaches down, she takes his hand, and the word enraptured comes to mind because she catches her breath. She's like, oh. it's almost like the touch of him was like too much, like, oh. and then she can almost not breathe, and she's like, oh. and they're walking, and you can see it in her whole countenance. She's like, I can't believe it. I can't believe he wants me. Oh my gosh. But she doesn't stop, because that would be stupid. <laughs> right? And then the sisters come in, and that's going to happen. The world comes in, and they want to see, oh, yeah, mm-hmm. And she just walks right past him. I'm not listening to you. Uh-uh, uh-uh. But do, do you walk with him in such a way that the world looks on like those sisters did and also catches its breath and wants what you have? Because they're watching. They are watching. And then she gets to the door and the mother-in-law's up there and she does what she never would have had the strength to do otherwise. But because she's holding his hand and has found her identity in him, she turns around to the one who has shamed her for a long time and without any remorse, I forgive you. Oh, snap! <laughs> that is power! And we say, that's the gospel. That's the gospel. Now... What would happen though? Let's say we followed them as they skipped along, got into the pumpkin carriage, went over the rocky road, much like the buckboard breakfast this morning, right? <laughs> Sliding into each other, he has his arms open, slide to me, right? And they get to the castle steps and there it is. The castle, it's glimmering, the sun is hitting it. She can see smoke from the Barbie coming up from the back. And she's like, oh, and he's like, come on, Cinderella. And they start going. And then on step three, she collapses and sobs. And he's like, he's holding her hand so and he's like, hey babe, what? And she's like, it was so bad back there. They treated me horrible. They told me I wasn't worth anything that I was cinder and ashes. <laughs> Ooh. And many of us do that. We're holding onto the hand. The castle's right there, the promised land. And we're sitting in the wilderness in what happened a long time ago. Getting our identity from that. When he says, no, I got shrimp on the Barbie, man. <laughs> the hot tub is hot and I'm yours. Why would we stop and sit down on the steps and listen to the lies of the past? Uh-uh, your future's ahead of you and it's called the promised land. You grab his hand and you run. You run. Take off the slippers so you can make top speed and get up those stairs. Amen? Amen. 
Amen. That's number two. That's the second response. Here's the third. And this is the one that I hope everyone in this room adopts because this is the one that's going to bring you power. Okay, we got one more response to make it through. We are going to make it through it. If you need to use the bathroom, go ahead, but I will poke and make fun at you. Okay. I'm kidding. I would never do that. I don't think so. Okay. So in order to do this, we have to go to Daniel. So open your Bibles to Daniel. We're not making it far in Daniel. We're just parking in chapter one, but you have to see this. Okay, you have to see how this goes up. And we're just going to read through here. In this rendition, we have King Nebuchadnezzar, who is the reigning king of Babylon. He is coming to make a siege and to take youth from Jerusalem back with him. All right, and so there's many sieges that happen, but in this particular siege, they get there, and we see what kind of youth they take. In verse 3, it says, Then the king ordered Ashpenaz, the chief of his officials, to bring in some of the sons of Israel, including some of the royal family and of the nobles. They're definitely looking at worldly definitions of greatness as they select these kids. We want nobility. We want royalty. Continuing on in verse four, youth in whom was no defect. They were good looking, showing intelligence. Sound like the world standard? And in every branch of wisdom, not just knowledge, but knowing how to use that knowledge to make good decisions. Endowed with understanding and discerning knowledge. They were able to, to discern between good and evil. And who had ability for serving in the king's court. These were able-bodied youth. And he ordered the king to teach them, or he ordered him to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. This is exactly how King Nebuchadnezzar worked. This is genius. You do not gain somebody to serve you by making their lives miserable, tying their hands behind their back and chaining them and making them hate you. Instead, what you do is you brainwash them to love the things you love. There is no more formidable foe than a friendly fire. And so the friendly fire that King Nebuchadnezzar sets up is his culture. He says, I tell you what, we're gonna submerse them in our culture. We're gonna give them the choicest foods. We'll read that. Choicest foods means they would have came right from King Nebuchadnezzar's table. The best food, the choicest wines, give him my wine. Wine was cut back then, so it was cut very watery, but the king would have had more powerful wine. He knows exactly what he's doing. He's gonna make them love it there. I'm gonna make you love it here. Sounds like a lot like our culture right now. And the king appointed for them a daily ration from the king's choice food and wine, which he drank, we just said that, and appointed that they should be educated three years, at the end of which they were to enter the king's personal service. Educate them. Teach them about our culture, the language, the literature. Just get them familiar with it. Make, it. make it their own. If we can get them in love with this culture, they'll forget their roots. After all, these are 13 to 17-year-old kids, right? That's how old they were. History tells us there would have been 50 to 75 in each siege. Now, among them from the sons of Judah were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. And then the commander of the officials assigned new names to them. To Daniel, he assigned the name Belteshazzar. To Hananiah, Shadrach, Mishael, Meshach, and Azariah, Abednego. So you've got several things happening here. He's going to give them new names. Their old names were names that said, lover of the one true God, lover of Jehovah, Yahweh's witness. And when he changed their names, he changed them to things that would be lover of Baal, Moloch's witness. And so he changed it all to these false gods because the thought was, the more I call you that, the more you will become that. Ancient days name calling. 
nowadays, names aren't that important, and I think there's a reason. You know, people don't name their children like, some people do, don't get me wrong, but a lot of cultures in our culture, a lot of times we just pick a name because it sounds nice. And that's okay, because the enemy doesn't have to worry about our name being said to us and, and us believing what it said, because we call ourselves enough names as it is, right? We make a bad choice, and we hear a name in our head, oh, that was stupid. Why did I do that? Stupid, stupid, stupid. Right? Or I might hear, I'm a lousy mom because of a choice I made. Well, if I believe it long enough, I would probably become it. And so the enemy knows exactly what he's doing. But here's the cool thing. Verse eight. But Daniel made up his mind that he would not defile himself with the king's choice food or with the wine he drank. So he sought permission from the commander of the officials that he might not defile himself. Hmm, let me think about this. So they were going to educate them in the language, the literature, give them new names, and choice food. Four things that we're seeing in scripture. And Daniel kind of says, well, you know, your language and your literature, I don't think it's bad for me to know what the, the other side thinks, you know? And I think that's for us too, as a Christian, I think I should know what other religions believe. I don't think there's anything wrong with me educating myself on what they believe, and their language, but Daniel also knows that all that has to be backed up against God's truth. Your truth preserves me. Preserves means protect. So as much as I might be being educated on this, your truth will protect me. I'll be able to discern between what's true and what's false. And the new name thing, you didn't have to worry. Daniel knew who he was, but he refused the food. And here's why. Out of all four of those things, the only one God had made a prohibition on, which means he said, don't do it, was the food. For a Jew, they couldn't, they couldn't eat food sacrificed to idols. And on King Nebuchadnezzar's table, any choice food would have been food that was sacrificed to idols. And where God drew a line, Daniel drew a line. Where God said no, Daniel said, I'm going to stand on that. You know, before we take a fence down and we're like, oh, you know, I'm not going to do that, ask why it was put there in the first place. Before you go against what God says, ask why he might have put it there in the first place because he did it to protect, to preserve. And Daniel knew this. He said, where God puts a line in the sand, I'm going to put a line in the sand. Do we compromise on that? And I would say, I think we do. And most of the time, it's because we don't know what line God has placed in the sand. And so I'm, I'm going to talk about obedience, you know, and you're like, oh, Tammy, you know, what, we, we, what, what do you mean obedience? Like, that doesn't even make sense. We were talking last night that we're saved by faith. I get it. I get it. But here's the thing. This is how it works. You know, which one of these is right? I obey, so I am saved. Or I am saved, so I obey. Because one is right and one is wrong. This is what I grew up thinking. You know what this leads to? Uncertainty. I hope, was I good enough? Where's the list? How good did I have to be? I mean, what if there was like four pot pies I had to make and I only made three? You know, where's the list? If this was how we were saved, by obeying, then God would make that so clear in scripture by giving us a total list many times over of what to follow given the fact that he's a God of love. But it's not. But that doesn't take obedience out of the picture. I obey because I'm saved. It's an appreciation. The story is told of the woman who had a horribly abusive husband and he left her a list every day of things to do. 
And she would find that she couldn't finish what was on the list, and at the end of the day, he would come home and look at the list, and if she didn't finish it, he'd beat her. And one day, to probably her pleasure, he died. <laughs> I don't know how else to say that, but he, she was probably relieved, like, oh, I'm not gonna get beat anymore. And she found somebody else who was a wonderful man, generous, kind, compassionate, and she married him. And one day as she was cleaning up, waiting for him to come home from work, she found one of these lists that her old husband had given her, crumpled up behind the sofa. And as she unwrapped it, she realized that she, in love, did everything that was on that list that she couldn't have done out of fear. It was a response to love that makes us do those things. You cannot take works out of obedience, but don't put it on the wrong side of the cross. Don't put obedience on the wrong side of the cross. Our problem is we don't know what to obey and we compromise for anything. There was a surgeon who went into a surgery and he went in and, and it was a, a girl that came in and her body was battered and bruised and he realized that the only way to save her, the only hope for her was to, a direct heart massage. Ravi Zacharias tells this account, I love this. And so he broke the rib cage, went in and started massaging that heart to find out that she was gone, just gone. And so he went over to, to wash his hands and as he was doing it, the nurse came in and she piled this big bag of drug paraphernalia, dirty needles and everything else out of a backpack onto the table. And he, she says, Doc, you should see this. This is what we found in her apartment. And as he looked at that, he was like, whoa. And then looked back down and realized he had nicked his finger in that surgery. And Ravi, as he was talking to this person, he says, wait, are you telling me that it, it was a deep cut? And he says, no, it was just a paper thin cut. He says, wait, are you telling me that you could be in serious danger, like even danger for your life from a paper thin cut? And the doctor says, yes. Question is, are there paper thin cuts we're making to our soul? Are there paper thin cuts we're making on things we're compromising and allowing in? Because that A to Z line I just showed you, one of my son's friends got himself into a heap load of trouble, facing criminal charges, expulsion from school, kid that grew up in the church, love this kid, love this kid, called his mom and said, mom, do I have permission to come and pick up your kiddo? I'd like to spend the afternoon with him. I'd like to bring him over with our family. She said, sure. So we brought him over and I sat talking to him on the front porch and I said, you know, I explained this A to Z thing to him and I said, so where was your B? Like if you had to look, he didn't hesitate. He said it was fourth grade and it was a secular song. And he liked the, he liked the verbiage, he liked the, link, the, the linguistics, he liked the lyrics, he liked all of it. And so he downloaded some more from that artist. And then he knew his mom was gonna want him listening to that so he lied to her. And then because he lied to her about that, he found it easy to lie to her about other stuff. And then the kids liked him because he listened to their kind of music and that felt good. Do you see where this is going? One little step at a time. Where are we compromising? Where are we allowing paper cuts in that are gonna really be lethal if, not, if left unchecked? Where are we allowing that? And so knowing that this isn't gonna make me very popular but not caring, <laughs> I'm gonna give you guys an assignment. This is what do you stand for. If you do not define what you stand for, you will define what you fall for because you will fall for anything. And on this sheet, I have listed off all different things that God does speak to in his word that maybe we have found ourselves compromising on. There is something in it, by the way, for us to actually look and see what God says we should do and then make a statement about what to do. There is something in it for us. And it comes right here. Now God, now God. When God sees a soul that is altogether consumed with him, willing to obey even if it doesn't make sense, God shows up big. 
And the blessings he bestowed upon Daniel and his friends are amazing. What I think is equally as shocking, though, is out of 50 to 75 kids that were taken into captivity, we only hear about four of them. Every other one bowed. Every other one had a price tag. You found my price, I won't follow. Or I really love this society and this culture, so I'm not bending. Cost is too high, don't have the resources, I'm gonna make peace. They're the only four we read about. That means in a group this size, that would be eight. Eight of us that would stand and say, I'm not bending. The problem is we don't think about this stuff, so we don't have a line in the sand. But where God draws a line, we have to. As you read these, some are super clear. You know, what does God say about, you know, um, like what does God say about marrying unbeliever? Well, that's super clear. He says, don't. It's super easy to obey the, the negative commands. If he says don't, then don't. That's easy. It's really hard to obey the positive commands. Love your neighbor as yourself. What does that look like? And my guess is we've not even thought about it. So that your job is to look at these and where it doesn't say, you decide. Like, at least think about it and say, all right, what would, what would please God in this, in this whole place? You know, uh, we're you know, not letting any um, impure image before our eyes. You know, what does it say about things like looking at impure images? And I will tell you that when we do this, we're, we're in a position now where we can train our brain. First Peter 1.13 says, prepare your mind for action. I did a boys' study, eight to 12-year-old boys, and in there I talked to them about pornography because if I don't, I know the world's going to, and especially if they're hanging out with older neighbors, I know it's just a matter of time. And we have a lot, an older neighborhood, so this is something that was near and dear to my heart because I have boys. And I put an X on a piece of paper, and I told them I, in a very layman terms what pornography was, basically pictures of people without their clothes on. Right? That's all they need to know. Picture, it's not pleasing to God, but here's the thing. If you see it, it's going to sear into your brain, so your job is to not see it. And so if somebody, if you see something like that and you can kind of vision it, don't look, but you should have three responses at the ready. Oh, I forgot my mom needed my help. Oh, man, that's right. I got to take out the trash. And you're supposed to bounce your eyes. This is good also for people who've already been attached to pornography, right? You, they have to retrain themselves to bounce their eyes. Just bounce those eyes. Bounce them, bounce them. It's like a little ping pong game in your head, right? But I'll tell you what, one of those boys came up to his mom and said that a neighbor boy was trying to show him pornography on the computer. And he said, I remembered the ex. And he turned away. Saved one boy from having to just be a slave to that. And my 15-year-old in biology class had a kid pull his phone out and say, hey, you want to see some porn? In biology class at the high school. And at that point, my son doesn't need an excuse anymore. He just said, dude, I'm not into that and bounced his eyes. They'll be walking, my kids will be walking through the mall and as they pass Victoria's Secret, they're looking down like this because they know the power of that. I don't let my boys get the mail for fear of what they might see, soft porn coming through the mail. You don't know what it does to a boy. And that's a rabbit trail, I get it, but I'm sitting with a lot of moms, sisters, and, and grandmas in here and you know what? Don't let your boy, that's a slave, man, that is a slave. And so on this sheet of paper, all those, and so you're gonna read what the scripture says and then put down on a piece of paper, I will or I will not. Put your line in the sand, it's time. No more compromise. Compromise is only gonna lead to you feeling shame and God doesn't want you to do that. So at the end, I'm gonna have you guys come up and get those. I'm not gonna check them, you don't have to hand them in or anything. So it's not like I'm gonna do that. I'm gonna end with you guys just saying that, um, a golden nugget, because 
In Matthew 21, it talks about obedience. And obedience is hard. I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna tell you I've got the corner of the market on this, but obedience is tough. And in Matthew 21, oh, here's your PT, sorry. Self-discipline, what do you stand for? The dis- discipline is the difference between knowing what you want now and knowing what you want most. And so if right now I want to lose 10 pounds, then what I want most, which is the Snickers bar, I'm not going to do. You know, but if I haven't decided what I want most, then what I want now will always win. It will always win. So if you want most a relationship with the Lord, then what you want now will change. That's just it. Here's your, um, your practical tip. Each day or week, make yourself do one thing you don't want to do and don't allow yourself to do one thing you do want to do. That's training. I do that with my kids. They have to do that too. Make yourself do one thing you don't want to do today and don't do one thing you do want to do. Like, don't have that extra cookie. But here's where we're at. We're in Matthew 21. This is where we're going to end. What do you think, says Jesus, there was a man who had two sons. He went to the first and said, son, go and work today in the vineyard. I will not, he answered. But later he changed his mind and went. Then the father went to the other son and said the same thing. He answered, I will, sir. But he did not go. Which of the two did what his father wanted? The first, they answered. And here's the golden nugget. Obedience without a struggle reveals little of your true submission to Christ. Only when you don't want to do it and do it anyways do you find your commitment, your commitment to Christ confirmed. Amen. Because sometimes, I've said for years, I want to want to obey. Like, I will obey. I just want to want to. You know? And that's really hard because a lot of times I don't want to and it's a struggle. But that struggle is what shows that's proof of your salvation. Otherwise, why would you do it? I asked my son to pick up my kiddo from, from his friend's house yesterday because I was going to be here. And he was like, oh. I'm like, I didn't ask you to pull your nose hairs out one by one. I'm like, just pick up your brother. I mean, I, I'll pay for the gas. I mean, what do you want, you know? And he's like, oh, mom. And he woke up the next morning. I went to bed. I thought, whatever, you know. He woke up the next morning. He came down. He goes, mom, I, I'm sorry about my bad attitude. I, I'll do it. I'll, I mean, I don't want to. And I'm like, dude, I've got a great scripture for you, (laughs) which was so cool. He's looking at me like with those glazed eyes, like, what are you saying? I'm like, later, later. We'll do it later. It's good. (laughs) It's good. But don't forget the now God, okay? Now God. Last thing I'm going to say to you girls is that when you obey, this is what it kind of looks like. So this summer, I got real irritated with my husband, and I was having a hard time accepting instruction from him. I could accept it from any one of you, but for some reason, from him, He's always right, too. That's, I mean, I'm, I'm legit. He does everything better than me. Absolutely. You know, he's just good at it. It's just how he's bent. And he's smart. And he, I, he really doesn't mean it to put me down. But I started taking it like, of course, people would obviously die on my watch. You know? <laughs> he'd come over and I'd be making some noodles. And he'd be like, oh, we should turn the burner to that. I'm like, of course, because I was going to blow the house up. Clearly, clearly I can't boil noodles. You know? And so I started taking it really personally. And I started to get a little snarky with him. You know? And so one day we were at Woodman's and um, in front of my kids, great, in front of my kids, I, I, used, to, I used to be a checker where we would actually pack the bags ourselves. So I know how to pack a bag. <sighs> so anyway... I'm at the line with the paper bag and the groceries are coming down and I kind of enjoy packing the groceries. I don't know, I kind of like it. And so I was packing. I wasn't halfway through my first bag and he came up and took the marshmallows out to repack it and I was like, and I was just, and I sat in my stink for two and a half hours. I was just beside myself. 
And my countenance absolutely made it known to the kids who were with me that I was not pleased with daddy. So nice that the Lord put a guard over my mouth, but he sure didn't put it over my face. Okay? But we get home, and I'm still sitting in my stink, and my son Mitchell decides that that would be a good time for him to work on his summer verses. We memorize a verse a week in the summer, 12 verses in all. And so I pick the verses out because clearly someone in my family needs them. Hashtag blessed. Right? Right? And so he starts, I'm doing, I'm writing a letter to a missionary to encourage them in my good frame of mind. I thought that would be good to do. And so all out of my son's mouth, I hear this. Proverbs 12, 16. A fool shows his annoyance at once. <laughs> Lord? Lord? But a wise man overlooks an insult. Now, clearly, that's not a positive, or that's not a negative command, like, don't get angry. But there's a command there, isn't there? There's, there's something there. And so I realize what I have to do. And I'm not going to lie that things were bleeding as I bit my tongue all the way <laughs> to the garage where my husband was. But I went out there, and I said, babe, your nine-year-old son just used God's word to show me. Amen. Can you see yourself doing this? Oh, so painful that I have been, that I was a fool because I showed my annoyance at once. I want to be a wise man and overlook the insult. And he turned to me and he started to cry. And I think he was praying that God would speak to me because he knew I was being a, a poo. Right, And it wasn't easy, but I love that then right after that, the Lord gave me that nugget. That obedience without a struggle means nothing. But that moment when I was able to go out and do that, which went totally against my selfish flesh, that was a, a shining moment. And then I did one of these there. I'm like, oh my gosh, that means I'm a believer, honey. And he's like, I knew you were a believer. I said, yeah, I know, but that was like more confirmation. Like I wouldn't have never done that before. <laughs> The kids come out, what's going on? I'm like, uh, the Lord just showed us that he's real. How, mom? Because two years ago, I would have ripped your dad's head off. <laughs> and I didn't. <laughs> Amen. I'm going to pray with you. Father God, Lord, I pray and I thank you so much for this day, Lord. You have not only shown you are worthy, Lord, of all of our worship, adoration, and awe, but because you are so generous, compassionate, and giving, Lord, you've agreed to take the punishment for our sins and to wear our shame. Father, help us not to make peace with the enemy. Help us not to live in the wilderness when the promised land is right there and identify ourselves with our past. Lord, that's not what you say. Instead, Lord, I pray that this entire room sets themselves up as mighty warriors, mini Daniels that are gonna go out and take down the gates of hell. I pray this all in your son's name, Jesus. And they all said? Yeah. Sheets are up here when you're done. Do not forget them.